Genesis, uh, the life of Abraham and the descendants of Abraham to, to Paul's to deal with a different topic, uh, at least up until Easter, and then right after Easter, we'll pick back up with Abraham and continue and finish out our series on Genesis. Uh, this new series, as you can see, the title on the screen behind you is The Gospel and Government, and so we'll be spending the next nine weeks or so uh, dealing with topics that relate to these types of matters. Uh, why did we decide to do this? Well, about four years ago, we had a an election, presidential election, um, and uh, after the election, our church was impacted in ways that we did not expect. Uh, and so as a result of that, uh, we as the leaders learned some valuable lessons, at times painful. Uh, we decided this time around to, uh, to try to take a proactive stance. And so as a result of that, we're launching this series to try to uh, get people to think most of all biblically about the issues that are going on in our world. So at the end of the series, I hope is that ultimately that each of you will be most uh, mindful of and, and, and remember that what's most important is that your allegiance belongs to God and his Christ. Uh, that, that's where your greatest allegiance is um, because at the end of the day, God is going to set up his government in the world and all human governments will come to an end. Uh, and, and if you are a, a believer, a saint, one who's been baptized in the faith, then as Paul has said so many years ago, your ultimate citizenship uh, is not ultimately to the United States of America, but it's part of God's kingdom. Uh, and that's where your greatest allegiance belongs. So if you don't get anything else out of this series, we want you to end up with, with a greater allegiance to Christ and to God and to his government and try to represent him well in the world. And that's our hope for this series. So uh, let's, let's read our text for the day, and then we'll pray, and then we'll jump into this particular topic, which is our introductory topic uh, to set the series up. So we're in Genesis chapter 1, very familiar verse. If you don't mind standing, it's, it's just going to be very brief, and I just ask you to stand out of respect for God and his word. Uh, so you can turn there, Genesis chapter 1. You may not even need to turn there because you might already have it memorized. Um, is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. I probably if I asked you to quote it, you probably could just do it from memory, but we'll, we'll read it. Uh, in ESV, it reads this way, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of the only mediator between God and man, your son, the man Christ Jesus. And we request your mercy and grace on our time together. We recognize our limited capacity as human beings, uh, and, and we see that, that that's true in many ways. We ask that you would pardon our iniquities, especially the moments where we have acted in arrogance to act beyond what you created us to be. We humbly ask that you would teach us today what is the right way to see the world according to your word that you have so faithfully preserved through many generations and you so kindly ensured that it was in a language that we can understand. We want to see rightly. Help us by the work of your Holy Spirit. Open our minds, Lord, to grasp truth. And once we have a hold of it, we understand it. Then help us to order our lives by it. We want you to be glorified in all that's said and done, and your people to be benefited. We ask these things in the name of the resurrected one, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. <coughs> but often in the world's most crowded streets, 
but often in the den of strife. There rises an unspeakable desire after the knowledge of our buried life. A thirst to spend our fire and restless force in tracking out our true original course. A longing to inquire into the mystery of this heart which beats so wild, so deep in us to know whence our lives come and where they go. Matthew Arnold, The Buried Life. This young lady's story I ran across this week, I think that exemplifies or illustrates uh, the gist of what Matthew Arnold was getting at in this poem. Her name is Miss Lou, and I want to share with you uh, about her story, uh, about a transition in her life. She writes, uh, at the end of the 1970s and the beginning of the 1980s, the socialist ideal was for everyone to have the same rights. Uh, everyone was to be treated as a brother or a sister. According to communism, everyone lives in one big family, and eventually we would realize our ideal. Social equality. No war. No fighting. Abundant food. Enough supplies. Total harmony. Endless and total happiness. See, in China, the dream of we are rich together or we are poor together faded. With the open door policy, we suddenly went into a period of economic expansion. Communism was still taught in class, but Marxism was needed to be applied to life. And it wasn't. Fewer and fewer people believed in it. None of my college friends did, and neither did our teachers. The more we studied, the more questions arose. The theory, the ideal picture of communism was perfect. It had been said. Then why wasn't our country moving toward that goal? Why was there more and more trouble in society? One day in my study group, all of us came to the same conclusion. Communism is just a dream. We realized that if communism were ever to work, it would require perfect human beings. And we looked at shock at each other. No one could say a word. We knew that none of us could be perfect. What we had been taught was based either on a false dream or on a lie. We had nowhere to go in our thoughts. What reality could we believe in? Even science could betray us since people are not perfect. Even the most intelligent ones make mistakes. History is written by people. It could be mistaken. We dared not go further. Believe it or not, the 30 students in my class broke out in a sweat. Let's, let, let's not think, one of my group leaders said. Let's try to do whatever we can to make life better for ourselves. Uh, let, let's improve ourselves as much as, we can, as much as we can and make as much money as we can and enjoy life today. What, what's right and wrong, it's not important. J just be open to everything. Go for freedom. Life is short. Let's have fun and make good use of each other. As you probably most likely noticed in the story that she reports that there was something that changed fundamentally in the way they saw the world. And when that change happened and how they saw the world, it was not long after that their lives began to reflect the new way that they saw the world. And thus, they had a change. 
But what is true of Miss Lou and her 30 classmates or so in that group is just true of humans in general. And that is why our worldviews matter. So you might be asking then, what is a worldview? I want to draw upon the work of uh, James Sire for the majority of the sermon. He has worked in this field and done studies for over 30 to 40 years. The poem and the story that I just told, I've drawn from one of his works uh, that I've read. But I, I want to give to you his refined definition uh, through interaction with many minds and others who have written on this topic to the definition that he has. Uh, he gave as a result of this years of study uh, to what he believes a worldview is. And, and I'll share that with you now. It's on the screen behind me. Uh, he defines a worldview in these terms. He says a worldview is a commitment, a, a fundamental orientation of the heart that can be expressed as a story or in a set of presuppositions. And here he means by that assumptions which may be true, partially true, or entirely false that we hold, and we might hold them consciously or subconsciously, consistently or inconsistently, about the basic constitution of reality and that provides the foundation on which we live, move, and have our being. He goes on to explain this definition in a variety of ways, but he says it's a matter of the soul and is represented more as a spiritual orientation or perhaps a disposition than solely as a matter of the mind alone. Uh, worldviews are a matter of the heart, and here he means heart in the biblical sense. Uh, it is the motive behind our pattern of behavior. He says, in my estimation, simply by being alive in the world, everyone makes and lives out a religious commitment. And the character of that commitment controls the entire character and direction of one's life. See, our worldviews are so much a part of who we are that we don't often if ever, think about them. But we have to have them in order to think at all. And so we use them on a daily basis, and they then ultimately direct our choices, the thoughts we think, and the behavior that shows up in our life. To give you an example of two things that are part of your worldview, which I would start probably say is true of everyone in the room, at least at this level, I'll give you two examples. One, most of you probably don't think about it, but you function this way that you assume that there is something rather than nothing. A second one, there's another one, which, is, which I would say is this. Uh, you assume that your senses that you have are trustworthy and give you reliable information by which you can engage the world around you. You probably don't think about that on a daily basis, but you use that every day to function and think and uh, interact with the world. So I try to think of an illustration, and, and I hope that Dr. Sire wouldn't kill me for this, but I'll do my best to give an illustration of what I, what I might be trying to get at. I don't think it gets fully there, but to, to try to get our minds wrapped around it in a more practical way. So this past Christmas, um, my mother-in-law likes to send us gifts, which I'm thankful for, uh, and, uh, and she sends us different gifts at Christmas. And this particular year, uh, amongst the gifts were uh, three pair of glasses uh, that we received, and they were specifically designed to be used with the Christmas tree. And, and I couldn't tell by looking at the glasses what they exactly did. And so you, you, you put on your Christmas tree, you turn on the lights, and as you put on a pair of glasses, glad the glasses, uh, what would happen is that in the glasses, when you looked at the lights, uh, whatever they had done to the glasses or the lenses, it would change to an object. So you would no longer see the light, but an object. So in one pair, you put it on, and, and, and the light had been so distorted that it formed the shape of a present. So what you saw was all over the tree was filled with presence of light. 
And I thought, wow. So that made me put on the second pair. And, and, and then on that pair, when I put the glasses on, I saw peppermint uh, canes hanging off the tree made of light. And the third pair happened to be snowmen. And that's kind of the idea of what's going on with the worldview. Worldview, first of all, is that commitment to put on a, a particular pair of glasses. And for whatever it is, our assumptions that make up the lenses cause us to see the world in a particular way. Perhaps you see the world as all presents or, or candy canes or, or perhaps snowmen, whatever it is that forms your worldview. But that's kind of idea, but it, it's, it's at an internal level. It's, it's glasses that are, that are upon our souls that, that cause us to interact with the world. Now you might be wondering, uh, is it really, is this worldview idea, even talking about this to open the sermon series up, really all that important? And I want to offer you three brief reasons of why it's important for your life. First of all, and one I would say is this, everyone has a worldview. You have one, whether you're aware of it or not. You're wearing glasses. Uh, two, your worldview will impact your life. As we saw in the story of Miss Lou and her classmates, what you see and think about the world and the, how you think about it and the, the grid you use to do that will influence your decisions and the choices you make and even the thoughts that you think and the way that you think. See, whatever your fundamental commitments are are going to guide and shape your life. Three, uh, if you don't take time to consciously develop a biblical worldview, then you will absorb the worldviews from the society around you. So in her book, Nancy Piercy in Finding Truth talks about this idea. She says, when it comes to worldviews, worldviews don't come to us nicely labeled. When you're watching TV or you're reading the newspaper or you're reading a book or you're in conversation with a friend, it doesn't pop up and says, advisory, worldview warning. Here I'm about to give you a different worldview than perhaps what you believe, uh, and so you need to know that. Know that, that we, we pick them up as we just live through life, as they're being exposed to us, and before long, if we're not careful and we're not watching, we'll absorb those things in, and they'll shift our worldview. Perhaps this is why there is a struggle with many Western Christians. So this past week in my community group, one of the brothers uh, had a, a great devotional, and I thought, man, how timely this devotional came in. Uh, this week because it had to do with the topic and, and I thought I'd share with you uh, about it because I think Paul Tripp hits on the idea that we as Western Christians often face in our Christianity, one of the dilemmas or struggles that we have when it comes to this idea uh, of worldview. And so Paul Tripp starts off this devotional which came in I think on Wednesday uh, and he says, just imagine uh, when you get home today, go into either your kitchen, your bathroom or your bedroom and, and take a look at the drawers. And he said, uh, you'll probably notice that you have at least two drawers. And he says, but when, I, when you look at those two drawers, I want you to think about it in this way. This is how most people live their Christian life. It's compartmentalized. And they have two basic drawers that they're operating out of uh, for most of us. Uh, there is what we call the, the real life drawer, and then we have the spiritual life drawer. In the real life drawer uh, is where you would keep things like your everyday life, your job, your physical health, your family and friends, your leisure, your money, your possessions, your daily routine. It's the drawer you probably most often go to in life on a daily basis. Uh, it affects what you think and what you do. Uh, it's where you spend most of your emotional and physical energy. Uh, it's where your dreams are when they're realized or dashed. Uh, it's the place that you draw probably most your sorrow and joy out of is this drawer, the real life drawer. But then most Christians have a, a second drawer, the spiritual life drawer. And that's where you put all your God stuff at. You know, in that drawer is your Sunday worship or weekend worship, whatever service you attend, your small group involvement, community group, your tithes and your offerings, your short-term mission trips, those evangelistic conversations that you have with neighbors, family, or friends. 
and you go to that drawer on occasion. Yeah, you believe in Jesus and you think about forgiveness and eternity, but those beliefs don't really have a radical impact on the way you live your daily life. They're an aspect of your life because you only go to that drawer at certain times. It's this other drawer that you, you function out of. And he asked this question, he says, on a daily basis, what most influences the way you think about yourself in your life? What are the driving factors for the majority of the decisions and thoughts that you think on a daily basis? And then he says, the biblical worldview doesn't have two drawers. There's only one drawer. And he calls this drawer the gospel in everyday life. The biblical worldview says there's only one drawer and everything goes into that one drawer. Dr. Pierce says she lays it out. She says this, if we're to have a Christian worldview, we will want to eliminate those contradictions in our worldview. As long as we keep operating out of two drawers, real life drawer, spiritual life drawer, there will always arise contradictions. And that's why uh, he said in his definition that at times we live our worldviews inconsistently. Because when we're living a compartmentalized life, we get some things over here that don't match up with things over here. And we're trying to live out of both drawers at the same time. And, and so our idea in this sermon series is to bring you into one drawer and to live out of that one drawer. So then what is a biblical worldview? Dr. Sire, out of his years of study, have said there are at least eight questions that are answered by any worldview, whatever one you want to take, and there's a number of major ones, but I want to take each question in turn and answer it from a biblical perspective. We won't look at other worldviews today uh, for the sake of time. And, and today I'm just going to lay the foundation. I won't be comprehensive, but just simply laying the foundation. So we're going to take each question in turn. Let me start off with the first question, and this is it. What is prime reality? What is prime reality? Now, if you don't have a philosophical background, you're probably wondering what exactly is he trying to get at with this question, as I did when I read his other book, uh, Name the Elephant. And I thought about this, and he told this little story that I think helps to illustrate what he's getting after, and so I'll share that story with you. So there's this uh, story about a boy, right? He's in elementary school. He goes to school, and on that particular day in his science portion of his day, he learns about the earth and how it hangs on nothing in space. Well, of course, you know, there's some principles and stuff that, that cause it to be so gravity. But, but from his perspective, hanging on nothing. So when he got home that day after school, he talked to his dad, and he said, Dad, what's holding up the earth? So his dad thought he'd have a little fun with his son. He said to his son, there's a camel holding up the earth. And his son, because he believed his father, hmm, accepted that belief and walked away. But this was a reflective young man at an early age. And so in about an hour, he came back to his dad. and He said to his dad, but dad, what's holding up the camel? To which his father replied, there's a kangaroo that holds up the camel that holds up the earth. And the boy accepted that. That seemed like it could work. And he walked off, and a short time later, he came back again after some more reflection. He said, Dad, but what's holding up the, the kangaroo that's holding up the camel that's holding up the earth? And at this point, the dad is starting to realize something is happening. And so uh, the dad tried to think of the largest animal that, that he had in his mind, and he said, an elephant <laughs> holds up the kangaroo that holds up the camel that holds up the earth. By then, the boy had caught on, and he said, Dad, but what's holding up the elephant? <laughs> so the dad uh, realized that the problem he had caught himself in, and so what he responded was, it's elephant all the way down, right? And the point of this question is, what's the elephant? That's what we're after. 
What is it that holds up all of reality? What is the really real? If we were to probably look at it from a, a scientific perspective, we were coming at it from that angle. Why is there something rather than nothing? And depending on who you ask, you might get different answers to these questions. Uh, some in our culture might respond to you. It's the universe, matter and energy and their interrelationship that have always been or some other forms of that, whether that's a multiverse or whatever, that have always existed and that might be the answer. Others might say God, but the Bible, uh, Bible unequivocally responds, God. So let's go to the text, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where we started at. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When we get to the end of the Bible, we see the same thing, Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, as the elders cry out in praise of God. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Or as Paul testifies about Jesus in his divine nature, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him, meaning Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So the Bible says, listen, the only reason that anything exists and continues to exist is because of God. All reality finds its source in God. As a matter of fact, what the Bible testifies about God that differentiates him in one capacity from any other being in existence is that he is the only self-existent being. God doesn't need anything outside of himself to exist. He needs no source of food, no air to breathe. Uh, he doesn't even need an environment to exist in. God just exists. He's always existed. He exists and he always will exist. And he's the thus the foundation of reality. And that's why in the account of the burning bush, when Moses asked what his name was, he said to Moses, when you tell the people what my name is, say to them, I am who I am. Or Jesus in the New Testament put it this way in John chapter 5, verse 26. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted that the son also has a life in himself. The Father has a divine quality of life within himself. He is life from which all others draw life. The answer to the question is God is the really real. That brings us to our second question. What is the nature of the world around us? Here we'll turn to the book of Hebrews to find our answer in that wonderful chapter on faith, chapter 11, verse 3. The writer of Hebrews says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So what we understand from this is that God created the universe by his word. Uh, here he is getting at the point it's not out of pre-existent material stuff. In light of an ancient view, this would be important. Nor did God create the universe out of some part of his own being. He didn't rip off an arm and make the universe as some other gods did in their thoughts, or at least in their mythologies. To put it popularly in Christian circles, we often say it like this, he created out of nothing. But not only did God create by his word, the sheer power of his word, he created with order and regularity. Genesis chapter 1, we see it in the text, verses 14 through 16. Here uh, we read these words. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens 
to separate the day from night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth and it was so and God made the two great lights the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars see without order and regularity in the universe it would be difficult for us to live and make any decisions in the world to have any impact on the world around us and it's these gifts from God that the early sailors used to be able to even to navigate the seas uh, we, do, we use these gifts today to, to be able to do science uh, we trust in these gifts to be able to have food and giant farmers are depending on God's regularity and order in the universe so that they can grow crops to to sell to us so that we can have food to feed our families we sang about it earlier when we sang the song great is your faithfulness we also know that from the miracles like the Exodus and the ministry of Jesus that this is not a closed system it's an open system because God continues to stay involved in his universe that brings me to the third question and that is what is a human being what is a human being and so scripture provides the answer we return to Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 through 28 then God said let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them and God blessed them and God said to them be fruitful and multiply fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth what the text tells us simply is that all human beings are created in the image of God and as we are made in the image of God that means in some ways we resemble him in our status specifically uh, as representatives on earth and as a result of that status and to be able to represent God on earth he has gifted us with a variety of things let me name a few of those gifts he has gifted us with self-consciousness the capacity for reason and to be able to gain and understand knowledge according to Genesis chapter 2 verses 16 and 17 you remember when God gave those commands and restrictions about what trees and freedom about other trees we realized from that that God also gave us the capacity to recognize and understand and make choices about what is good and what is evil we also have the capacity to develop relationships and build communities he made them male and female we even have the capacity for creativity if you didn't have a chance and you didn't pass by this entrance when you entered you would have noticed that we have an art wall there's a clear demonstration of our ability for creativity however there is an order to God's place our place in God's universe and we see that in Psalm 8 when we read these words he says yet you have made him that is man a little lower than the heavenly beings and has crowned him with glory and honor so in God's economy and the way God has set up the universe visible and invisible things there are other beings that God has created that are at a superior level to us at this state uh, straight or current uh, stage of events in God's unfolding of his uh, purposes for the universe uh, and so what that means is we ought not to be prideful 
but it doesn't mean that we don't have dignity. Instead, what the text tells us, at least in Psalm 8, is that humans have dignity and value because every human has been made in the image of God. Now, I would like to stop there as we talk about humans, but I must go on because there's another side to humanity. It's the one we often see reflected in the news or in the newspaper uh, that we would prefer if it were not true, but it is. And it's the story of Genesis chapter 3, the fall of humanity into sin. See, although the text tells us that God created the original humans good, humanity was corrupted by its own choice as it decided to willfully disobey the command that God has so clearly laid out. And then sin, as a result, has infected every one of those gifted capacities that God has given us. And as a result, we struggle with sin to this very day. But there is gratitude to be given to God because God has made a way for humans to be restored to him in relationship and to be restored to our original purpose to be image bearers of God. And he's done this through, as the scriptures tell us, the work of one man, Jesus Christ. Paul sums it up in his letter to the Romans when he writes these words. Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, that would be Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's, Jesus Christ, obedience, the many will be made righteous. God has graciously made a way so that we could be restored to him and restored to our purpose for which he created us to serve as his image bearers. That brings me to the fourth question that he raises, which any air worldview will answer. What happens to a person at death? Well, from a biblical worldview, although others might want to choose different options, we only are given two options. Either a person will ultimately spend eternity with God, the heavenly beings, his holy angels, and his people whom he's collected together, or a person will be separated from God eternally. Now, we might want a third option, but really we ought to be thankful considering the biblical narrative that there's a second option at all. The car could have only come in fiery red and not in heavenly blue. But we do have two options. I want to show those to you. I'm going to run all the way to the end of human history. I'm not going to talk about the intermediate state, which most of us encounter until the resurrection, but let's talk about the, the, the summing up of all things at the end of time. Let me show you that to you in Revelation chapter 20, starting at verse 11. So we see uh, John having uh, two visions here. In the first vision, this is what he says he saw. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it was who was seated on it. From his presence, the earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead and great and small standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Here's the second vision. Then I saw a, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Two destinies, one with God and one away from God. That brings me to the fifth question. Why is it possible to know anything at all? What we read in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, just a moment ago, we are made in the image of God, which comes with certain capacities, like intelligence. But I love the way Dr. Sire puts it when he puts it this way. He says, as he is the all-knowing knower of all things, so we can be the sometimes knowing knowers of some things. In addition to this, God has revealed things to us, and that's why it's reliable. We have revelation, what we might refer to as general revelation, the universe, what God has made, at least in the visible senses. We don't have access to the other realm. And then there's special revelation. God's greatest special revelation is the person of his son, Jesus, and we have the Bible, God's word to us. And you want to see that in different places? It's like Psalm chapter 19, those first two verses. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. And then the very first two verses of the, the book of Hebrews in chapter 1 give us these ideas about that God has revealed, and that's why we're able to have knowledge. And God reminded Job in chapters 38 through 41 a, a truth about reality, that humans, we operate from a limited perspective on reality. God, however, sees everything, knows everything, and takes everything into account when he makes decisions. He has a, a much better perspective on reality than we do. And thus, his view of reality is the one to be trusted. Sixth, how do we know what is right and what is wrong? The short answer is God. As one Yale professor made me aware of, when we look at the uh, ancient Near Eastern background and the Bible against that backdrop, there's something interesting that stands out to us about the Genesis narrative. There's this tree that doesn't pop up in any of the other ancient mythologies or stories about creation. This tree, there's a tree called the knowledge of good and evil. And that, that because it doesn't appear, what it lets us know, which it takes priority over the tree of life, which is just kind of there, and which was mostly featured in other thoughts about how the world began and what was important. But what, by the tree of knowledge being centered at and becoming the main focus of the story tells us something about God, that this God is concerned about the moral state of the creatures that he's made. Morality is very important to him. We might ask, why is that the case? And so Jesus, when he comes, as he reveals the Father, he tells us why this is important. Let me give you those texts so you can look, up, look them up later. Luke 18, 19, Mark 10, 18, and then Matthew 19, 17. And this is what Jesus ultimately says there. God alone is good. No one else, God is good. We might think of that in light of his holiness and his loving nature. Because, and because of the fact that God alone is good, it means that he is the source and standard for all morality, the objective standard 
of what is really good and true because of his nature. And God has then taken time to express his nature to us in the form of commands, such as love your neighbor as yourself. Don't lie to your neighbor or about your neighbor. If you're looking for some more information on that, a short, there's a nice short video on YouTube by Reasonable Faith Ministries called The Moral Argument, and it describes this idea in the context of that, which I think is very good. It's God who is good. And because we're made in his image, even if we deny his existence, we cannot help, we cannot avoid bringing morality to bear down on human decisions. We can't get out of it. Even if we say he doesn't exist, we still find atheists wanting to have morals because we've been made in the image of God. Seventh, what then is the meaning of human history? Again, I draw upon Dr. Sarr's definition. Here, human history is a meaningful sequence of events leading to the fulfillment for, of God's purposes for humanity. In other words, the human history is linear. It's moving in a direction. Genesis to Revelations. There's a story that has a start, and it's moving towards a specific end that God intends. And so that's where human history is going, to God's intended end. Lastly, what is or what personal life-orienting core commitments are consistent with this worldview? Jesus gives us the answer in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 33, you probably are able to quote that one from ministry, uh, from memory as well. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. How do we seek first the kingdom of God? The same way that Jesus did when he was here on earth. And what did Jesus do to seek first the kingdom? Jesus had a core commitment in his life. And the core commitment that we hear voiced in different ways throughout his ministry that kept coming up was that he was always committed to do the will of his father above anything else in life. We see that most clearly at the cross as he prepares for it, right? He was more committed to obeying the father and doing his will than having his own comfort and pleasure in life. And so we likewise, the way we seek the kingdom is by ultimately seeking to do the Father's will above anything else that's going on in our lives. What I've shared with you is simply just the foundation for a biblical worldview. Now, perhaps someone is saying here, uh, why not operate off of a different worldview? There are other options in the world. My neighbor has a different option. I might want to choose theirs. And I like choosing. I'm American. I like to have a choice. So why can't I choose a different choice? Well, let me talk to you in a specific reason. Uh, if, if you're a Christian, let me try to reason with you if you're a Christian. So uh, if you're a Christian, my thought is that your belief, your, your, your core commitment has ultimately changed if you've come into relationship with God. You were oriented towards yourself, but when you came to faith in Jesus and, and your inside changed uh, in the sense of what direction you were facing, that is, away from God, now you're faced toward God, that also means that you've also received the gift of God's presence of his spirit. And one of the things that the spirit does in a believer's life is begin to, to bring about these new desires, desires that Jesus had when he was here because his desire is to reproduce the life of Christ in you. And one of those desires that Jesus had was to please the Father. 
And if you are born again, that ought to be a desire that ought to be showing up in your life. Didn't say you're doing it perfectly, but it ought to be there. And if you have that desire, then it would seem like that if you want to please the Father, you've got to think about the world the way the Father thinks about the world so that you can live in a way that is consistent with that. And the only way to be able to do that is if you have a consistent biblical worldview. But that assumes that you belong to God and that your heart has been changed. But there may be others in this room where you're not in that place. You don't have that desire. So let me offer to you uh, some uh, apologetic reasons, perhaps for you to consider that some of those professors have offered. One, if you consider it from a strictly intellectual standpoint, the biblical worldview does not succumb to the flaws that other worldviews fail at or have in them. Two, a biblical worldview adequately explains the information that we receive about reality from our own experiences, from the experiences from others, through critical analysis, and through scientific investigation. Three, a biblical worldview explains what it claims to explain. And fourth, a biblical worldview satisfies the soul ultimately because it is true. See, we all need a biblical worldview, especially those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. So you might be asking at this point, how then do I know what my worldview is? How do I know if I'm living out of true, two drawers? And this is not an easy answer. It doesn't just come quickly. It takes prayerful reflections. As you sit down and, and take into account, what is it the things that I believe? What do I see in my life that demonstrates what I really hold as core values? What do my actions tell me about what I believe? What, what, what changes and de developments have happened to me over the years as I've been living my life? What does that tell me about who I am and what I hold as a worldview? And that takes prayerful consideration because sometimes it's difficult to admit the truth. So one of the tests that he gave in the book was like this, to give, to give an illustration of what it's like to have to reflect on this in a real-life example. So he said, just take a piece of paper one day, sit down, and begin to write down all your beliefs about God related to prayer and all your thoughts about related to prayer that you think are true, that you say that you hold to. And then he said, then look at your life and be honest and write about how prayer plays itself out in your life and see if there is a match between what you say you believe and what you do in your life. And that'll begin to help you understand what your worldview really is. Now, how might we, in light of the fact, if we take time to reflect on this and think, and we find that there are some inconsistencies, how might we change our worldview? Well, if we take the definition that Dr. Sire has offered, that fundamentally at core, though there are things that can be described and, uh, from a, a mental standpoint, that it's fundamentally an, orita an orientation, a spiritual orientation or disposition that one has that causes the thoughts that we adopt and things like that, then it means that we need to move toward God and not away from God. And the only way that that can happen from a biblical perspective is ultimately that a person must come into relationship with God. And the only way that can happen is we have a changed heart. And the only way that happens is we must come to Jesus. We have to come to him, put faith in him, and repent from our sins. And then he gives to us forgiveness and the gift of the Spirit, who ultimately changes the core commitment that we have so that we're, we're now living in a world where we're in relationship with God as opposed to how we were living before and living in a world without a relationship with God. And when that core commitment changes, we begin to have new thoughts, new commitments that lead us our lives in a new direction. 
Well, perhaps you're in this room and you're saying, I already have that commitment. My heart has already been changed. I've already come to faith in Jesus. And you realize that there are things in your worldview that needs to change. That first means that you need to recognize where there are inconsistencies. And where there are inconsistencies where you don't line up with God, you must repent of that. And then ask the Holy Spirit to help you to adopt what is consistent based on what God's Word teaches, either through reflecting on Scripture, which you'll need a lot of, and reading Christian writers who help you to think through these matters in a more deep way. See, it only comes by relationship with God. That's how our worldview is changed. Let me close by taking us back to the story of Miss Lou and see how this played out in her life. She writes, after temporary harmony of a false dream, we entered a chaotic mix of competing worldviews. I was totally confused and lost. Something was wrong, but I didn't know what. Then one day, someone read chapter 8 of Paul's letter to the Romans. And here were the principles of the Christian life, the definition of love and truth. The first time I heard these words, I just knew that this was truth about right and wrong, what I was looking for. The tenderness and grace of forgiveness washed across my heart. It was all the reason I needed. See, Romans tells us just how sinful our human nature is, how there is an infinite and good God. And from my limitations, I saw his unlimited power. History knowledge, science, these are all just pieces in God's puzzle. See, life is more than just working, consuming energy, and purchasing things. Life is more meaningful when one sees truth and love in the tongues and hearts of people. Many good things return to me, a desire to love freely, a passion to serve, a joy to search for truth. Knowing God means to me being in relationship with him, and it provides security and a restoration of my strength. Even the difficulties have stretched me and made me grow. It's more than words can express. See, your worldview really does matter. And as such, our hope in this sermon series is to make sure that you try to live out of that one drawer and have a consistent worldview at the end of this sermon series. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to think about your word. And Lord, these are heavy things that impact our lives on a very real daily basis. And Lord, to be honest, there are times when it comes to facing ourselves, it can be frightening to look in the mirror and to see what's really, truly there. We ask that you would help us to be honest with ourselves, to be honest with you. And where there is change needed, would you help bring it about in our lives? We need your help. We won't do it on our own. Lord, whatever things we've began to hold on to that we've picked up along the way in life because perhaps we weren't critically thinking about it or, or looking at what we had absorbed into our worldviews that were not like you, and perhaps we're still living out of two drawers, would you combine those drawers into one for us so that we can be consistent with what we say we believe? We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand, and then we'll...